in the summer of 1983, I had my world radically changed. In fact, everything about me changed uh, for one simple reason. My family started attending a new church that summer, and in the front row was the pastor's daughter. And really, just one word came to mind, which was hubba hubba. And, and I mean, everything changed. So much changed that even my theology changed because there's a teaching found in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul is the one that goes at greatest length about this, which is called the imminent return of Jesus Christ, meaning that there's nothing left that has to happen historically to preclude the sudden and immediate return of Jesus Christ, that basically history has a beginning, history has an end, and how you will know that this thing is wrapping up is that Jesus will come back and he will bring his saints to glory and their reward. Now, the summer of 1983, I began actively praying against this biblical teaching and theology because I wanted my reward here on earth with her. I at least wanted a chance. And so I started praying things like, dear Jesus, you can come back anytime you want, but give me a shot with this girl first. Like, I at least want to know what it feels like to have conversations with her. I want to at least know what it feels like to possibly even date her. Like, I know that, like, eternity with you is awesome and heavenly reward and all that kind of stuff, but I will be badly behaved in heaven for all eternity if you don't give me a chance. And so as, as an 11-year-old in 1983, my theology was fairly well developed, as was my prayer life, except I was praying against God's theology because I just— I wanted my reward here. I wanted my reward now. There, that, that, that at the time, there was nothing about eternity or Jesus or angels or any of that that meant anything to me compared with my desire to, to have a chance to date Trish. And then, of course, five years went by. It took me that long for a number of reasons to catch her attention. One was I was shorter than her for about the next five years. And so I had just had a while to grow up in every way possible. We started dating April 30th, 1988 was our, our, our first kiss, and it was awesome. It was, it was worth the wait. And, and then my prayer, you know, my prayer continued. You would have thought that I would have let go with my antithesis and dislike of the doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus. But now that, now that we had shared a kiss and we were actually dating, I, I was going to be a good boyfriend. And I wanted the rewards of being a good boyfriend. And, and none of that had to do with angels or chariots of fire or, or my eternal reward or home in heaven. I, it's all good things. But dear Jesus, you've delayed your arrival for 1,988 years. Can you just delay it a little bit longer? Because I want the rewards that come from being a good boyfriend. And then, uh, you know, we turned 19 years old. And in 1991, we'd obviously waited long enough, and so uh, we were engaged. And then my prayers continued. I want the rewards that come with being a good fiancé. I, I want the rewards that come with getting to start a family and potentially being a husband. Dear Jesus, do not come before my wedding day. Just, just don't. I want the rewards of being a good husband and a good fiancé and, and a good boyfriend. And before that, for years, just a good friend. And so the Lord has graciously given us 25 years together. I don't know how much my prayers had to do with that, 
and, and I'm not trying to make light of the rewards that God is going to have for his church and for his saints. We're going to be talking about that today because Peter had a problem with this very issue. But what I'm saying is that there are times where we want our reward now, that we've been faithful, we've been found trustworthy, we've been found, uh, we want, we've made sacrifices, and we want a degree of compensation. And I definitely felt that way regarding my dating relationship and being engaged and, of course, married to my wife. And so Tuesday was a big day. We've been talking for the past couple of months, months about Peter's problems with Jesus Christ because this has been our thesis, that Peter had problems with Jesus. They had some disagreements. They had some misunderstandings. And as we understand uh, how the ministry of Jesus Christ played out in the life of Peter, even though he didn't understand what was going on all the time, we will have a better understanding of the mission of the church. How does a three-year ministry of a Palestinian Israeli Jew 2,000 years ago have anything to do with the mission of the church today. And as we explore the problems that Peter had with Jesus Christ, we've been answering that question in very practical ways. And today is going to be more of the same. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be taking a look at verses 23 through 30. Here's the context. Once upon a time, a rich young ruler, think trust fund baby, came to Jesus and said, good teacher, good master, good Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because he had everything the world had to offer. The only thing left for him was whatever God had for him for eternity. So he wanted to make sure he wasn't going to miss that. So good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus replies, you know the commandments. And he lists about five or six of them. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, uh, honor your father and mother, a few others. And, and the man replies, I've kept all of these from my youth. And now what you and I know is that money makes being a good person easier. You're just simply not tempted to steal your neighbor's stuff if you have better stuff than your neighbor. You're not tempted to be envious of your neighbor's stuff if you have better stuff than your neighbor. Having wealth, if you're a trust fund baby, you know, sure, there's going to be sins that you're going to struggle with, but when it comes to the Ten Commandments, honestly, you're not looking to murder or mug anybody for their stuff because you have all of the comforts that this world can provide. Jesus, seeing this and loving this guy, makes him an offer that he never made to anybody else in the New Testament. And he says, tell you what, sell your possessions, seeing that he had great wealth. This is what the text says. Sell your possessions, earn treasure in heaven, Give your money to the poor and come follow me. Be number 13. Be my 13th apostle. Be my 13th disciple. No other place in the New Testament where this offer is made to anybody. Jesus was literally offering him a spot on his team. And then the text goes on to say that the man went away very upset because he had great wealth. And he made a choice that day. And he decided to hold on to his wealth and to not follow Jesus and to possibly at the risk of his eternal reward because he was placing his, his earthly comfort above his eternal destination. That's the context, and the disciples are amazed. So we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the trust fund baby has wandered away, I assure you it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there have been a number of studies done over the years, and maybe you've read these things too, where uh, they're saying, well, Jesus is speaking metaphorically about camels and needles, and what he's really saying is that it's really hard, but it's not impossible. My best understanding of the text is that Jesus is actually talking about a literal camel, and he's talking about a literal eye of a literal needle. That he's basically saying, rich people ain't going to heaven so much. Trust fund babies are going to have a wicked hard time going to heaven. It's like trying to get a big camel through a really small, impossibly small place. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and then said, who can be saved? Because they, like us, naturally equated riches and wealth and being a trust fund baby with obviously God's favor. That Jesus, if, if God loves you, he blesses you with lots of money and you have a life of ease. This is their misconception. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, salvation is impossible. With, with men, this is impossible, salvation. But with God, all things are possible. Our boy, Peter, we're so glad he had problems with Jesus. We've learned so much because he just says his fine, and it's been very helpful. Then Peter responded to him, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? This is Peter's problem. We've left everything and followed you. What is our reward? You see, Jesus, there was a time when I was a business owner. Uh, my brothers were partners with me. My cousins were partners with me. We had a couple of boats. We were thinking about buying some more. My dad kind of gave us a kickstart in the business. We were fishermen. I mean, you know this. And because you provided miraculous, uh, a miraculous catch, you know, I was able to actually leave my business and still provide for my family. And we have any chance of earthly wealth, Jesus, I walked away from at your guidance. I am here with you. I'm not here with my family. I am here with you. I'm not with my business partners or fishing anymore. And so I have given up my hope of wealth on this planet. I've given up to a certain degree a close relationship with my family here on this planet. And now you're saying that salvation is next to impossible. It's like a large fuzzy beast trying to walk through the eye of a needle. I, where's my reward? Like, why am I in this? I thought I was following you. I thought I was leaving you for eternal security, for salvation, and, and possibly even some influence and leadership here as you get things going. If it's impossible for guys like that, and I've left all that behind, what is there for me? What is my reward? Jesus continues. Jesus said to them, I assure you in the messianic age, in the age to come, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields because of my name will receive 100 times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And he goes on to tell the parable of the vineyard workers, which you might want to take a look at because he illustrates this idea of how the first are last and the last are first. One of the first observations I'd like to bring to your attention about the text is that you would think that if Peter was having a conversation with Jesus 
And it was about something as blunt about what's in it for me, that this would be an opportunity for Jesus to say, you selfish and gracious person, like you get to hang out with the son of God on the planet, something that all of history has looked forward to and all of the time to come is going to look back to. You get to hang out with me for years of your life. We get to share meals and travel. You get to hear my teaching first person. You ingrateful wretch. What more reward do you want other than the one that you have? Because every other person who's ever lived on the planet would give their left arm to have five minutes in my presence. And you've got three years. You would think that this would be where the text would go. That Jesus would kind of let him fly and say, you selfish turkey. You've been richly rewarded just by being in my presence and seeing the miracles that you've had and hearing the teachings that I've delivered. That's not what Jesus says at all. Instead, he says something here that he doesn't say anywhere else. And he says, I assure you. He does not take Peter to task for wanting to be rewarded here in this life, now, and in the one to come. In fact, he commends him for it. And says these magical words, I assure you that your reward is going to be a hundred times of anything you've walked away from. In the Gospel of Mark, it's recorded that Jesus said in this life and in the life to come. Because there's three accounts of this very same interaction. So he doesn't take Peter to task. He doesn't take him apart. He doesn't call him selfish. He says, you are right in expecting a reward in this life and in the life to come. I assure you that you will receive a reward. And now why does Jesus do this? It's because Peter properly understood the price of the reward. He had left his family. He had left his job. He was entirely depending upon Jesus to provide for him day by day and to keep his family safe while he was on the road with him. So out of respect for the fact that Peter actually knew what it was to follow Jesus and had left family and had left his job, far from taking him apart for being selfish, he said, I assure you of your reward. And it's completely out of accord with what you've left. In fact, it's a hundred times what you have left. Because requesting reward means you understand the price. And, and, and Peter understood what it meant to make a sacrifice. And so the Lord was quite willing, far from being upset with him, assured him of the rich reward that was waiting for Peter. So Jesus had something to teach him, though, that was going to help him understand the assurance of his reward. What wouldn't we give to, hear, to have Jesus look us in the eye and say, I assure you? Because there is a part of us that is longing to hear that, that my faith has not been in vain. That my decisions to follow Jesus have not been in vain. That the time that I've invested in church and with my church family has not been in vain. That the time that I have spent reading his word and trying to conform myself to the image of Jesus that I find in scriptures is not in vain. Because honestly, it doesn't always feel as amazing as I thought it would. And what will we give to hear Jesus say, I assure you, you're on the right path, you're doing the right thing, and you're going to be richly rewarded because this is what jesus says i assure you and the big idea for this morning's message and the way that uh, peter was helped by jesus through this particular problem that he had with jesus what's in it for me is what's in it for you is that assurance comes 
with surrender. Peter, as you have surrendered your livelihood, as you have surrendered time with your family, I assure you of your reward. In fact, the more that you continue surrendering to me, the more I can assure you of your reward because assurance comes with surrender. If I was to uh, take a, 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 just a quick poll this morning, and, I, and I'm not asking you to do this, but just think about this and say how many of you are 100% confident that even though your spouse is a, is, a, is a chucklehead in any number of different ways, this is your opinion of your spouse, not anyone else's opinion of your spouse, that even though your spouse is a chucklehead in any number of different ways, in different ways that you are 100% confident that they are faithful to you. The vast majority of us, if I was taking a poll, would raise our hands. Because we all know our spouse's foibles and quibbles and, and, and quirks and the, and the difficult times that we have as a couple. But the bottom line is the vast majority of us are 100% confident. We have complete assurance in our spouse's fidelity and faithfulness to us. Why is that? Because they have surrendered completely to us in marriage. When they came down the aisle, they said no to every other person on the planet, and they said yes to you. They would also, are, you could also be fairly confident of your spouse's complete fidelity, many of us, because they know that you would beat them to death if they were to be anything other than completely faithful to you, and I would help you hide the body. That's probably not a great thing to say in a sermon on a Sunday morning, but it's kind of true. Let, let, I know people who would help you hide the body. How's that? One of the reasons you're completely confident in your spouse's fidelity to 100% assurance is you know you'd kill them if they're anything but completely faithful to you, and you know some people who would help you hide the body. The other reason that you're completely confident in your spouse's uh, fidelity to you, you have complete assurance in, in, in the sanctity and the holiness of your relationship, is because you also know that you're the best thing that's ever happened to your spouse. And that's just a fact. Now, I know I'm having a little bit of fun with this, but the bottom line is, is that because in a marriage relationship, we have surrendered our rights, we have surrendered a, a possibility of intimacy with every other person on the planet, save one, that brings a high degree of assurance in our spouse's fidelity. Some of you would be able to give testimony to this, that you have complete assurance that Jesus Christ is going to provide for your financial needs. Now, how can I say that? Because some of you, hopefully more and increasing of us, have surrendered our finances to Jesus. We have surrendered our finances to what the Bible talks about with money, and we have seen time after time after time after time that the Lord provides new jobs, that the Lord provides money from we're not really sure where, that the Lord provides new vehicles, that the Lord provides health, that things move forward financially because we have surrendered our finances to the kingdom. This is the Bible's promise regarding our finances, and there are many of us who have discovered this to be true, that we're really not, you know, while we're concerned about our finances and we would all say that just a little bit more wouldn't be a bad thing, we have complete confidence or close to complete assurance that God is going to provide our financial needs because he has. And so we continue walking down this path of uh, surrender because we have seen not only in our marriages, but for many of us also in our finances, 
that where we surrender, we have assurance. This is the idea that Jesus wants to share with Peter, that you can have a high degree of assurance about your reward here and there because of your degree of surrender. There's a beautiful verse found in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, that illustrates this. I have the words on the screen. I'm going to turn there real quick. This is how uh, Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs, kind of the same idea. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, he writes, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. We've all woken up early. We've heard the birds chirping. We've seen that the sun is starting to come up, and we know what's going to happen. That the sun gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter as the morning wears on. That there's no looking back. That there's no moving backwards. And so Solomon illustrates this principle with this beautiful poetic verse, basically saying that for those of us who have surrendered ourselves to a life of faith, our path becomes ever more assured or clear as we continue to take steps towards the Lord, surrendering things that lie in our past that lie behind. So much so that many of you would probably be able to give testimony to the fact that there were things that you made sacrifices for that now that you've matured to a certain point and you've surrendered those things, that when you look back and you think how hard you worked for that item, or how much time you spent on the road and away from your family for that promotion. That you look back on that now and you can't believe that you gave that time, energy, and money so that you could have that thing or experience. Because what you have now in your relationship with the Lord, in your relationship with your spouse, in your relationship with your children is so much more valuable to you than the extra thing or opportunity that you were able to purchase by making a sacrifice. That's kind of what's found in this text, is that Jesus says, what you're going to realize, Peter, is that as you continue to live a life of surrender, your assurance is going to grow, and you're going to look on the things that mean so much to you, many of them not bad, but compared to the reward that I have in store for you, it's going to be okay. And it's not that those things are cheap or invaluable, it's that the things that the Lord has for us far exceed anything that we can provide ourselves. So this is how Jesus helps Peter with his problem. We've left everything. What's in it for us? He teaches him that with surrender comes assurance. So what did Peter do? Well, the first thing that Peter did is, and, and this is the first idea that we share every week at this time, is that Peter continued to follow. Because Jesus didn't write him a check right then and there, Peter could have made a decision that, you know what, I'm just done with you. I've committed enough of my time following you. I'm going to go back and pursue my business. I'm going to go back and spend time with my family that I consider my time with you not well spent. And he could have walked away because he was looking for a more tangible reward sooner. But that's not what Peter did. He stuck it out. And, of course, he received his reward. Not only was he uh, guaranteed to be a, a, a ruler in heaven, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the book of Revelation refers to Peter as being one of the foundation stones upon which the New Testament church was constructed. So he also had his reward in that he had authority in the church before he died in Rome, a martyr's death. So the first thing Peter did was he followed. But Peter also wrote this. 
And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Each week, we've been kind of going through the life of Peter and reflecting on his time with Jesus through his epistles, 1 and 2 Peter. And this is his reflection of this conversation with Jesus. And it has to do with eternity and coming reward. And Peter's sort of continued frustration with the fact that Jesus hadn't returned in his own lifetime. So Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. One of the common themes in the New Testament And with this, I'm wrapping up our time together this morning. So, guys, didn't these guys do an amazing job with the worship this morning? Thank you so much. That was, uh, you know, as a dad getting to see your son up here and, of course, Vince and his three boys up here. Vince, I got to tell you, we have a new person in church today. His name is Oliver. He's just as beautiful as any boy you've ever pumped out. And... uh, and they're coming for you. I think I think the lunchrooms are going to take the Yanos down and, and have lots of babies. So that's the plan. But I, I appreciate the time you guys spent this week rehearsing. And what a gift to our church this morning to have young men following the Lord and, and leading us in worship. Very, very cool. There was a, a theme in the New Testament, and it was this. The imminent arrival of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is going to come back at any moment, just in the way he left. He ascended straight up. He's going to descend straight down. And with him are going to come trumpets and legions of angels. And he's going to wrap this thing up. Justice will be done. Rewards will be metered out. And history is over. And nobody wanted this to happen like the first century church wanted this to happen. Because they were suffering some difficult times. They were involved. They had surrendered and surrendered and surrendered. Some of the early church lost their homes. Some of the early church lost their families. Some of the early church lost their lives. And and this was the cry of the first century church, Maranatha, which means come now. Come now. Deliver us from this continual surrendering. Because sometimes this surrendering thing can be kind of hard. But they had 100% assurance that when Jesus came, He was coming with justice and mercy and their reward. And so it was the cry of the early church. And and, and the the church that Peter was writing to had been suffering. In fact, the theme of 1 Peter is how to deal with suffering as a Christian. Wait for it. It's going to come. And it's actually a, a proof positive that you are being dead to the world and alive to the things of the kingdom of heaven. And so they're like, Peter, where's Jesus? Where is he? When is he coming? And he says there's a reason that he hasn't come back yet. Now you have to understand that God exists out of time. So, you know, a long time to God is not a long time to us and the other way around. So understand that, that he's divine, he's eternal. But understand why the Lord is tarrying, why the Lord is being patient. It's because there are some who haven't heard yet. You see, on Father's Day, I'll tell you right now what every dad wants. 
is they just want to spend time with their children, preferably their adoring, well-behaved children, who let them nap. Our Heavenly Father wants the same thing. He wants time with his children, preferably the ones who understand the price of his relationship, that it cost him his own son. This is what God wants. The Lord has put eternity on pause, not because of my immature prayers, but because some haven't heard yet. And they have a reward that is 100 times anything they would surrender coming to them. And God desires more than anything that they would receive that reward, right? That's what the text says. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Our Heavenly Father wants the same thing we want on Father's Day, time with His adoring children. But not all of His children are adoring yet. And so it is, as the church, we implore people to come and spend time with the Heavenly Father. Receive your reward. Surrender the foolish things in your life, the things that you know are no good to you, especially eternally no good to you. Turn to the things that God has provided for you and receive assurance as you do. Because like getting up early in the morning, the more time you spend with the Lord, the clearer your life becomes. And the greater assurance you have in every single area of your life. Because the Lord is not slow, but he is patient. Because he wants his church to grow. And he's pushed the pause button on eternity so that more people could hear about his kindness and love for the planet and be able to respond. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you didn't realize where history is going. History is going to an end where justice and mercy will be done, and those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will receive their eternal reward. And God desires fervently that you would be a part of that. Maybe that's news to you this morning. And if that's the case... I would, I would encourage you to thank the Lord for pressing the pause button on eternity for your sake because he does not desire anything other than to pour rich rewards into your life in this life and in the life to come. Would you say a simple prayer acknowledging the reality of the kindness and the love of your Heavenly Father? Heavenly Father, I, I can't believe, now I know why Christians say this is good news. And I accept this good news. I turn from the things that I know are preventing me from being in relationship to you. Thank you for sending your son to make a relationship possible with you. And Father, would you give me the power through your Holy Spirit to surrender and surrender and surrender as you assure and assure and assure in this life and in the one to come. And brother and sister in faith, if you've been a Christian for a while, I pray that you're encouraged by this message and also motivated by the thought that the pause button has been pushed on eternity for now so that the family might grow. And may God give us greater and greater presence and confidence in his message in this community and everywhere that he would give us daily. Would you join me as I ask the Lord's blessing on the remaining of our time together this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for the promise of your word. Father, there are some people here this morning who are feeling like, you know, I've surrendered, and I've surrendered, and I've surrendered, but what's in it for me? Father, I pray, Father, that through the encouragement that we receive through Peter's problem, that these folks that are tired of waiting for their reward would begin to see how you have provided for them, not just for eternity, but also in this life to come.
Father, I pray whether it's a, a word or a prayer or a hug of encouragement from someone else who is here this morning or a cup of coffee during the week, that the power of your word would come alive for those of us who are weary with the waiting. And Father, for the rest of us, I pray that you would embolden us to share the power of your gospel. The pause button has been pressed on eternity in the hopes that the number of children would grow in their love and numbers. We ask these things in Jesus' name.